Home Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Hi, I'm Leanne Smith, Director of the Whitlam Institute. Thank you for tuning into this episode, featuring the panel discussion that followed our screening of the film The Scribe, a superb documentary about the legendary Graham Freudenberg, Gough Whitlam's speechwriter. In this episode, director and producer Ruth Cullen, the Honourable John Faulkner and Michael Cooney discuss speechwriting then and now. This podcast was recorded at Riverside Theatres, Parramatta, on the 26th of November, 2018. Well, well, before we get started on um, a few questions from me as moderator to the panel and then questions from you, would you join me in giving a big thank you to Ruth again for an amazing time. Some words from Graham that he's asked me to oh, read. Wonderful. Yes, uh, I, uh, I was his stenographer last two days ago. <laughs> so I promised him I would read them exactly as dictated to. Okay, Graham's speech. I regret so very much that I'm unable to attend this double celebration to congratulate Ruth Cullen and her splendid team of fellow workers and to thank the Whitlam Institute for the great help it gave Ruth in the making of the scribe. And I would also like to add to that too, the Whitley Institute were the first people that I went to see once I decided that I would make the film. And um, they were wonderful. Um, this is Graham now. The Institute was Goff's greatest interest in the rich last years of his life. I think he would have been as pleased with the scribe as I am. Among the treasures now in the Institute's collection is my copy of one of Goff's most important documents, the Fabian pamphlet. He said, Dan, you know how to spell Fabian, Ruth? I said, I think I know how to spell Fabian with the upbringing that I had. <laughs> it's called Labour and the Constitution. He published it in 1965, two years before I joined his staff. The copy he gave me is inscribed from one scribe to another. I was still working for Arthur Call in 1965, but as usual, Goff was always looking ahead. And it's funny with film titles, sometimes you'll try to work them out right up until the time when you lock off the image. This was always going to be the scribe right from the beginning. So it was a very easy one. Um, it continues. Ruth showed great perseverance in bringing me out of the back room after nearly 50 years. I believe she has captured finally, as opposed to finally, what I was trying to do. But remember, I was standing on the shoulder of giants. If I had to choose a single word that motivated me in all those years, it would be respect. Respect for parliamentary democracy, respect for all those who serve the parliament in one way or another, respect for an effective party system, and above all, respect for the Australian voters. Ruth has brought out this aspect brilliantly. I deeply believe that if we restore and maintain that respect, now under so many challenges, the future of our great country will remain bright. I'm sure you will agree that Ruth Cullen has made a magnificent contribution towards that objective. Her dad, Peter Cullen, my earliest mate and mentor in the Labor Party, would be proud. Oh. And <laughs> Thank you, 
um, as you know, we hope that um, Graham could join us tonight, but it was a, a, a bridge too far this evening. So thank you for sharing the message. It was really lovely. Uh, before we get into the questions, I'm not going to assume that everyone in the audience knows everyone on the panel, so let me give you a brief introduction to, to who we have here today, starting with, starting with Ruth. Ruth is one of Australia's most experienced documentary makers. She's known for her fearless and empathetic character portrayals and her willingness to seek out the untested. Her films have screened at film festivals all over the world. As well as making films, she's worked as an industry consultant to Screen Australia, executive producer, ABC Arts and Entertainment, and is the former head of documentary at Australia's premier film school, the AFTRS. Many of you will also know John Faulkner, who, amongst other things, is chairman of the Whitlam Institute Board. Uh, John was Labor Senator for New South Wales from 1989 to 2015. Following his election to the Senate in 1989, John held a number of ministries, serving as Minister for Veterans Affairs, Minister for Defence Science and Personnel, Minister for the Environment, Sport and Territories, Cabinet Secretary, Special Minister of State and Minister for Defence. He served as Leader of the Opposition in the Senate from 1996 to 2004. He's also held a range of senior positions within the ALP, including National President, 20 years as member of the National Executive and nine years as Assistant General Secretary of the New South Wales branch. John Faulkner is well versed in and passionate about the history of the Australian Labor Party. Prior to his political career, John worked as a teacher of children with severe disabilities. Michael Cooney is an author and former speechwriter and policy advisor. He's currently National Director of the Australian Republican Movement. Michael served as speechwriter to Prime Minister Julia Gillard, Policy Director to Federal Labor Leaders Kim Beasley and Mark Latham, and was the Founding Policy Director of the Progressive Think Tank Per Capita. Michael wrote The Gillard Project, My Thousand Days of Despair and Hope, about his speechwriting career. He was previously Senior Advisor at the HR Coombs Policy Forum, Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and is the former Executive Director of the Chifley Research Centre. So, as your moderator this evening, I'm going to start with two rounds of questions to get the conversation going, and then we'll open up the floor to questions from all of you. So let me start with you, Ruth, um, just to get the conversation going. Quite a broad question. Why this film and why this man? <laughs> um, look, I've known Graham all of my life, and I could have made this film a long time ago, and I never did. I think it's really timely, um, and I did. You know, something, sometimes things just coalesce and land at the right time, and I think that's what happened with this film. But I think what I'd always, um, Graham's always had a wonderful brain, I mean, which is obviously pretty, very evident up there, and I'd always loved talking to him. But I really just thought, is there a, you know, this, is there a way of just getting this on a screen that's going to hold people's attention? You know, that was because a lot of the speeches that I wanted to do, there's no recording of them. It's time, it's been done a lot you know so I was really kind of stretching myself away to kind of bring that vitality I mean that intellectual vitality to the screen but in the end it was just one of those ideas that once you plant the seed it keeps growing and then of course with the disaster of Donald Trump and it's not just Donald Trump he's just a symptom 
It's the total dumbing down of politics. And I, I made this film because really I think we can't ignore politics. Our responsibility as citizens in a democracy is to participate in politics. And I think there's a lot of cynicism towards politicians. And I have to say, given the clowns in government right now, I think there's a lot of um, reason for that. But it, it's bigger than that. I mean, I'm not trying to just... Um, to that, I think that it's really important that we do participate. And, you know, there's a whole lot of intelligence and wealth going on behind the scenes. My father was a former uh, political staffer, so that's the world that I grew up in. So, you know, you see the dedication, the intelligence, the commitment and the passion. And I thought, well, this is a way of getting an untold perspective on the, on the screen, but also a way about just restoring our faith into, into the integrity that goes on as well. And we, we can't ignore it. You know, democracy is fragile. We can't take it for granted. And we don't may not like everything that is throwing up, but you know, we, can't, we can't ignore it. So I think it, it came out of all that, really. Very, very timely, as you say. Yeah. Um, John, next question for you. Um, you are and you have been closer to Graham uh, than most of us in this room. Um, at the testimonial dinner last year, um, you said, and I quote, that there is a power to a great political speech that no other creation of language has, and Australia never had a better exponent of the speech writing craft than Graham Freudberg. So I wanted to ask you, what was it about his writing style or his process that made it so powerful? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but the first thing that I'd say is that Graham really entered the voice of the speaker. I think that's a really fundamental thing. So uh, when he was writing speeches for Arthur Call, he was Arthur Call, and then Gough, he was Gough. Bob Hawke, Bob Hawke, and through the three leaders of the state uh, parliamentary Labor Party in New South Wales, Barry Unsworth, Neville Rand, Oh, Neville Rand, Barry Unsworth and Bob Carr to get the right chronological order. Precisely uh, the same thing. So he was really, I would say, pitch perfect for the speaker. But I don't think anyone should think that this was mimicry. It wasn't um, mimicry. It was, um, it was a real gift as a speechwriter that Graham Frudenberg had. He added to that, obviously, a very, very deep uh, historical knowledge, a love of literature, as you see, uh, and that comes through um, the film uh, very strongly. And I just think he's got real strength in his uh, sentences. There's nothing flowery about anything that Graham Frudenberg writes, nothing at all. Um, you know, just, there's not, you know, too many adjectives um, and the like. He, he just never overwrote. That wasn't uh, his uh, approach. And uh, as we see in that film, uh, Ruth starts the film by um, that uh, great comment um, uh, from Laurie Oakes about where Graham is in the pantheon of Australian speechwriters. And it's, that's just some of the reasons, I suspect, that we find in there. Thank you, John. Now, Michael, um, given your experience as former Prime Minister Julie Gillard's speechwriter, I was wondering whether you could imagine a person like Freud, uh, with all his unique process and personality traits, 
getting a job on the Hill today. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you think the role differs um, from a modern day political speech writer? And it struck me again just watching it now, the, the comment um, that Graham made about in his process having a deep respect for the audience. Do you think we still focus on that? <laughs> you can't smoke in the building. <laughs> Uh, you don't have you don't have stenographers anymore, um, and uh, yeah, the microphone's been reinvented multiple times. So there is there's this huge tumult of change. Thank you, Senator. Um, uh, so no, it, a lot has changed, and no, certainly. Um, I guess speechwriters go, there are left-handers and right-handers, and Graham's definitely a, a left-hander, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> and uh, you, there is still a bit of a role, despite the professionalisation and routinisation of so much of modern politics, there's definitely still a role in a political office, a central office, especially a large office that has lots of staff for, um, for someone to be a bit of, a, of the fool, I suppose. I saw the National Theatre Theatre recently on screen, and... Well, there's definitely someone in the office who has to play that role and a lot of other advisors or cabinet ministers or colleagues kind of come to the Prime Minister with problems and bad news basically um, and the speechwriter usually comes in with a joke or a book launch or something quite nice you know? <laughs> like all the things that people walk into the Prime Minister's office to discuss you know um, that's actually one of the one of the better transactions you know I hey, feel grand final breakfast so, um, or even something really serious. So, there's, there is still a bit of a place for that imp, I suppose, yeah, for the, for the, for the joker. And the other thing that, the other two things that haven't changed, the audience point that Graham speaks about so well in the film about um, respecting the audience and knowing literally who the audience is and what they're actually interested in. Uh, even in an age where the, in a certain sense, the real audience is outside the room, uh, it's the media or the, the general public. They will still rely on the reaction of the audience in the room to, to drive their, their thinking um, about whether it was a good speech or not, whether it worked. And the other thing that hasn't changed is yeah, the point about um, it being not about the speaker, uh, not about the speech writer, but the speaker, and that it's very much a matter of finding their, um, loyally following their moment and, and finding a way to, to give them what they would have written if they'd had time, basically. They're all quite good speechwriters. They've just got more important things to do, basically. Um, and so the reason they need a speechwriter is because they've got to make some decisions about things that really matter and we've got to give them some notes. And um, the in, in, in Don Watson's book, not about speechwriting, but about natural history, his book on the bush, which is a really amazing book, he's got this story, which I don't think he originally realised was about what it's really about. He's got this story about um, about bush dogs and these two stupid dogs who follow their master who gets lost in the Riverina. Uh, and their master, two, three nights from home, can't find his way home. There's nothing left to drink, nothing left to eat. So he starts cutting the tips off the tails of the dogs and drinking their blood to survive. And there's two dogs because they're so stupid and so loyal, following for three days all the way home, right? And that's basically what speech writing is like. You just... <laughs> <laughs> so that hasn't changed either, I think. There's, I, I, I think probably less has changed than it might appear. 
So I was sitting next to you during the screening and I, I could almost feel your reactions. I just wondered what hit you the most about watching the film because I know it's the first time you've seen it. What, what did you connect with about Graham's work? Look, it's a very loyal and I would not sentimental in a bad way, but it captures his sentiment and a very it's not it's not a reverent treatment, but it's a very it's a heroic it's a film we'd all like to see made about ourselves, right? Um, <laughs> and I, what I do like is it does come through that like he knows that he's writing speeches, not Shakespeare, and that you're sort of wearing the second best suit when you're when you're writing speeches. And I do like the he's not a cynic, but like he knows what it is and what it's not. And that the the, the joke about the Chatham speech and why am I saying all this? Well, because you're in Chatham. Like that's so true. And I love the, he still uh, does that. He, he went down and gave a Fabian speech in Melbourne about three years ago, three or four years ago. Um, spends a page talking about how great golf was and what a great Fabian golf was. People used to say that golf was Australia's Fabius Maximus, but actually, really, Australia's Fabius Maximus was Race Matthews. And of course, in Melbourne, everyone just goes, oh. <laughs> and then Graham says the main word you need to say anytime you're in Melbourne, which is he just says Melbourne. And he says the word Melbourne for about six pages. He just goes, Melbourne, 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 Melbourne. Melbourne. Goff's dad was a Melbourne person, he grew up in this amazing Melbourne house, you really have to understand he was a deaconite figure in Melbourne, 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 Melbourne. And they lapped it up, right? They absolutely <laughs> loved it, right? And he's a speechwriter, he's not, he's not a poet, you know? He's there to make the audience happy and to persuade them. So I, I like the, the, the little moments of realism that come through what is also a very inspiring uh, treatment, I really appreciate it. That's why I failed at politics. Imagine saying leading, 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 leading. <laughs> um, Ruth, I, I wanted to know what kind of reaction you've had to the film so far and whether it's taken you by surprise at all. Um, look, people tend to say really nice things to the filmmaker at screen, so... <laughs> um, the, no, the reaction's been great. You know, and, and I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm glad. Yeah, I mean, you can never take anything for granted. Look, for me, the hardest screening, quite honestly, was showing Graham. Um, and as a filmmaker, that's always the hardest screening because I've done a lot of films about different people and you just never know how they're going to respond, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter what you've done. You know, you're condensing their life and it can be very, very confronting to watch. So that's he loved it, but that's always that was the hardest screening. Um, I was always pretty. Um, well, you know, it wasn't an easy film to put together. It was quite a tough one to construct, and it took a lot of time and stepping back and things. But once it was completed, the script, the reactions have been really positive. But they're probably not going to tell me if they don't like it in all honesty. But the, look, the reviews have been good. Um, I'm happy with it and people have responded really well. So that's all I can say. <laughs> Next up, Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to focus a bit now, John, on uh, what was, came out very clearly in the film but the relationship between the two men. And I wanted to share just some of those... Um, letters that Graham referred to, um, the birthday letters he sent every year to Goff. So I just got a couple from the collection to share with you. Um, one is dated um, 11 July 1998. And excuse me, the writing's quite difficult to read. Um, it starts, um, my leader, 
as we seem to have our apps together better than ever, and in view of the state of the nation, perhaps we must reconsider any retirement plans, mm -hmm. as ever, Rodenberg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's another um, that I quite liked from uh, July 2003. Um, my leader, four score and seven years ago, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I can't resist the gratification of saluting you in terms of the Gettysburg Address the ideals of which you have so nobly upheld in Australia, as ever, Freudenberg. And then there's the last one, of course, which he referenced in the film, which was quite simply, leader, as ever, Freudenberg. So, John, I wondered if you could tell us a bit from your experience of the two men, a bit about your sense of their relationship. Well, there's no doubt it was a very, uh, a very close relationship, and for both of them, obviously, putting family aside. I think it was as close a political relationship, as close a relationship as they had. Um, Graham said, and I just checked this uh, before I came, Graham spoke, of course, at Goff's memorial service, and he, he started with these words. This is the greatest privilege of my very privileged life. And I think that says a great deal about their relationship, as does, and, and Ruth focuses on this in the film, and it's a great thing, uh, because that leather-bound addition of the Whitlam government, I know how much that meant to Freudy. I know because he handed it to me in his home to lodge in the uh, Whitlam Institute archives. I know what it meant to him. And he told me at, in great detail and at great length, as he literally left his possession, but I was able to assure him to, to be looked after in perpetuity uh, in uh, the Prime Ministerial Collection uh, at the Whitlam Institute. And, and that, that inscription, that inscription also, you know, really says it all. Graham Frudenberg, my dearest colleague and companion, Gough Whitlam. Uh, and um, I suppose, I'm just talking to Catherine Dovey, just as um, uh, uh, a few minutes ago before the film started, and um, saying, really asking this question and uh, the the only other you know, non-family member you could point to that Gough had um, such a, a close political relationship with was Lance Barnard, uh, his, his deputy for so long and someone he um, uh, uh, fought so many battles uh, beside but certainly no stronger relation than Graham uh, Freudenberg from Goss perspective, and it's absolutely clear from from Graham's perspective uh, that um, he um, he never had uh, a relationship um, uh, like that uh, in his life, and and uh, and I've seen both of them very lachrymose about each other. You know, I really have. Uh, it was a, it was. Um, uh, it was um, uh, a very deep um, uh, relationship that they had. So, and summed up as um, 
uh, as you've uh, uh, said, um, Leanne, there in that um, final note from Graham to Golf, my leader as ever. Thank you. Well, Michael, my last question is for you. And um, I have here from from our archive, um, I asked our archivist to take to get something out for us uh, for tonight. And, and this is, um, if you can see it, not very well, I'm sure, but it's a travel journal of Graham's from a, tri a trip he took with the then opposition leader in 1967. I wanted to share a bit of it with you. It's... Um, We've seen a film about what a wonderful man Graham was. I hope you won't mind me sharing this part of his journal, which just shows a little bit of his sharp tongue as well. Um, but it's all in, in, in a good cause, I hope. So the, the journal starts with um, his name, N.G. Freudenberg, 8 Bruce Street, Ashfield, Occupation, Press Secretary to the Leader of the Opposition, Australian Parliament. And the very first entry... Uh, is dated the 23rd of December, 1967, place Sydney, Perth, Singapore, Bombay, on, on a, big, a big trip. Uh, here it goes. The Prime Minister's death, more remarkable than anything in his life, delayed us by five days. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's a bit more, but it says, if I appear harsh about Harold, it must be it must be taken in the context of the exaggerations of the past few days. All deaths are sad, and the death of a notable man, notably sad. But he was not a great man. As things go, he was a good man. And I only brought that out to show you what a wealth of treasures we have in the archive. But also, Michael in particular, wanted to ask you, as a, as a former speechwriter, whether you think you'll be donating your journals from your time as a speechwriter <laughs> to an institute in her name. And if you were to, what do you think someone like me would be pulling out in terms of treasures? Oh, there isn't dreadful emails. <laughs> dreadful. There isn't dreadful text messages to Troy, too. But, um, uh, his, one thing I'll take out of that is his, uh, for whatever reason, not just a speechwriter or a democrat, although he's got a great attachment to parliamentary democracy, but he's such a Labour figure uh, and such a partisan, with such a positive partisanship too. Like, you don't often hear him talk about the outside very much or what's wrong with him. He speaks very clearly and very compellingly um, about his attachment to Labour um, and that clear eye view he has of, of Holt. Um, it's funny, it's like notable is such a clever choice of word in that context. Um, and the first sentence should be the first sentence of a, of a novel, really. Like, it's really, like, even a war would be happy with that as the opening of a novel. Um, but no, he's such uh, a distinctive Labour figure and a distinctively Labour figure. And I'm really an influential thinker, too. Like, his um, work as a writer for the Prime Ministers is very helpful. You know, it's, it's obviously it's a, a great work of his life, but the argument he puts in that uh, that they pushed together in that Victorian speech that, that where they were moved out of the room and all the rest of it, and the um, sort of <coughs> labour as a cause for power and his influence over thinking in the New South Wales Party through his speeches for leaders at New South Wales conferences, 
Oh, no, it's the arguments he puts in these speeches, not, not just the phrases and words and, and the particular ones. They are very enduring arguments. So, uh, but it does take... You do have to be able to make a joke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was obviously a good traveller too. Yes, indeed. All right, enough from me. How about from you? Do we have a microphone to, to share? Mm-hmm. I think there was a spare over there. No, we Okay. Yeah, All right. Great. Been, right. Um, does anyone have a question or a comment they'd like to share with the panel? Yep, we have one over here. I, w- I would like to make a couple of comments because I feel very connected to this period of time. It's a part of my life, the time I've lived. Um, just, just some comments regarding the film. I think when somebody criticizes your film and is very emotionally maybe turned on about it, it's a compliment because a lot of people just walk out and don't even voice an opinion or they don't really think very much about what you've done. If somebody does really think about what you're doing, then they become very involved in the, the, the parts of the film. I think a lot of the film is um, what he criticizes himself. A, a, a speechwriter is somebody that manipulates. They've got a goal. They want to uh, try and achieve and manipulate that you share their opinion. There's no... The morals of the game uh, is the main thing you achieve, your goal, how you get there. Because the amount of people that die that after you, know, if you get the major vote, uh, they're the victims. But they voted for you. They did what you wanted. They did your bidding. He he gets inspired a lot from all the traditional literature, and it's very sometimes it's nearly, it's you know he infringes nearly everybody's copyright. He's in he's stolen wherever he could. Well, they're out of copyright. Now. Well, yes, they're out of copyright. But you can you can say I was inspired. Or you actually you, you stole you know it's it's you know it's, there's a borderline Once somewhere. You're out of copyright, you're so the next thing was it, the first thing in in war is the first thing that sacrificed is the truth. So I think in this film you know sometimes the truth isn't always quite obvious. And the last thing is the speech is um, something's like my leader God. Whoever saw the the, the club the dead poets you know. That's you know one of the basic lines in the film, and the other one is you know I'm a, I'm I'm waiting for you know Caesar was my friend you know just change the name and say that he was my friend you know it it seems a little bit sometimes uh, very patriotic uh, I think even today they call it spin doctors so I think you know you should sort of up your ante and get a little bit into the uh, t- um, the time of today. Ray, do you want to respond? Um, I'm not sure what the question was. Yeah, I don't quite know what to say. I think it is in the time of today. We're dealing with Trump. He talks about Trump. I mean, it did occur to me during the making of this documentary, and it actually hadn't occurred to me before, sometimes this is staring you right in the face, that the role of the documentary maker is not unlike the role of a speechwriter as well, as in that you're, you're um, 
you're telling someone else's story, but you're also filtering your own experiences through that. And when you look at Graham's speeches, you'll see certain patterns and certain themes and, and so on, even though people always emphasise the authenticity of people's voice that he gave to them when he was writing speeches for them. And I think the same thing is true as a documentary maker. And there's always a tension between what I came to um, the documentary with where I wanted it to go, what Graham had, and then the surprises that come along the way. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, really, other than that. But. Can I just take another question? Or? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit hard to say. Hi. Uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the film. The issue that was in my mind as I was watching it was how much red pen was involved with those speeches. And I wonder if, and, and I was waiting for that to be revealed, and I wonder if um, that was shared with you and you might be able to share it with us. Well, well I'll give you one very good example. Um, Graham seemed to have uh, no understanding or need for modern technology. The last major speech, I think it's fair to say, that he gave was at, uh, at Goff's memorial service. Let me tell you how that worked, which I think will answer your question about red pen. Um, I had a chat with him on the phone and he was a little worried about uh, the fact that he was um, scribbling out uh, notes and his only method of communicating such things to people was a fax machine. Uh, he, this is quite old-fashioned technology. I'm assuming it's still working. I haven't established that in the last few months, but it was certainly the last surviving fax machine in Australia up until a few months ago, which is quite a remarkable uh, thing of itself. But how, how, how Graham um, uh, wrote that speech and how that speech um, uh, was uh, presented publicly, which I think all the speeches made at that uh, memorial service were, because I, I spoke at, that, uh, at the memorial service myself, was this way. He would fax at approximately 4.30am uh, every evening to my then um, uh, uh, electorate office, as I was a serving senator, uh, whatever he'd scribbled overnight. Uh, a member of my staff uh, would type it up and at a reasonable hour of day, usually in late afternoon, we'd fax it back to Graham. Graham would then send scribbled, um, uh, and, um, well, uh, altered uh, uh, typed speech notes back by fax at 4.30am the next morning. <laughs> and the pattern continued. It was only broken by the weekend, which... Graham was quite surprised at this. He didn't realise that anyone took any notice of weekends. But this, I said to him, well, this, um, I didn't know how to work a fax machine. 
let alone assist with any of the other technology. So we just have to wait. So that I, I would imagine, I think there were at least ten or a dozen iterations of this speech, and I kept them all. Uh, I kept them all because it's a, I think it's a really wonderful insight into how the marvellous speech that he gave at Goff's uh, memorial speech uh, evolved. And, uh, and all those iterations are now in the archives at, at, the, uh, at the Whitlam Institute. But I, I suspect that's as good an example as you'll find. And, um, and, and of course, um, in an earlier life, um, he, um, uh, with, uh, this would be done with the, the benefit of someone like Carol Summerhays, obviously, taking shorthand at two words a minute or whatever it might have been. But a similar sort of, uh, uh, a similar sort of uh, process. There's a wonderful record of that speech, a comparatively brief speech, but many, many, many iterations. So I hope that's at least one good example for you. Anyone else like to ask something? Here we have two questions. Well, I'd like to just like to make a comment. Um, a wonderful film, and in brackets after the scribe, you could put the true believer. <laughs> Thank you. There's another person. Well, it is also, you know, it's that love of public service, and I think the thing about the whole leader relationship, it, it's a love of values, it's a shared kind of commitment to social change as well, and the bigger picture, it's not simply, you know, whatever you say, you know, I'm your servant. It was also somewhat ironic, but it was it was about that love, you know, that, that love of, of something bigger as well. So. Yes, please. Can I just say something on that? Because it, 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 a, a very fine example of what a true believer Graham was, and you're right, you're right to, to uh, say that about him. In fact, he's the truest of the true believers. He really is the truest of the true believers. And when he uh, left um, Arthur Corwell, I remember doing an interview in, with him at a, a, a Labor History Symposium and suggesting to him there's a, a little schizophrenic in one sense because he was he owed Arthur Corwell and and acknowledged he owed Arthur Corwell a huge amount a huge amount because he'd employed him he basically made his uh, his career as um, as a speechwriter but he's but when push came to shove, there was no issue for him. He, he knew uh, the right thing to do was to go and, and give his best for Gough Whitlam. This wasn't about personal loyalty at all. In fact, I think he was personally very loyal to both those employers. The key thing was that he believed, and he was right, that Gough Whitlam was the only chance of leaving, leading Labor to victory. So we put the party interest first in that, in, that, in that really tough personal decision he had to make. So I think you're right to say he was a true believer, and as I'm saying, even putting it at an even higher level, the truest of the true believers. 
and in the movie, uh, Green refers to Trump's uh, speeches as almost illiterate, which I think is pretty charitable if you've read the transcript. Um, I guess uh, my question is quite simple. Um, in the age of increasingly moronic soundbites from politicians, um, how do you think we can reinvigorate public oratory as a way to encourage people to have the right conversations around politics and to move them and change opinions? Great question. Yeah, very, th thanks for the microphone, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, one, I take some optimism or hope or something from the way that social media does um, is obliterating the intermediaries. Uh, in a way which is actually allowing politicians to speak more directly, including in speeches, to people, to an actual audience, rather than through um, intermediaries that are big corporations with big interests in the political economy um, and are run by, you know, a privately owned sometimes by people with lots of ideas, not all good ones. So, you know, one thing I really was struck by reading uh, Graham's lovely memoir, um, A Figure of Speech, is the struggles Labor had even in the 60s with the, with the press uh, uh, interests uh, and in the 70s again, and nothing's new. Um, and what social media is allowing is, okay, it's also amplifying the worst, but it is giving us breakthrough moments where I think politicians can speak really directly. Um, I think of the uh, President Obama's speech at the um, church burning uh, where, he, where he sang Amazing Grace um, and you first probably saw that. You probably actually saw it before you saw it reported. Um, okay, you probably saw a grab, like you saw a piece of it. Uh, but the piece that you saw was chosen by him or people who agreed with him rather than, rather than being chosen by um, a baron or a corporation. So I think there's some possibilities there. Um, certainly it's... That environment is diffusing is diffusing influence and interests in ways that is in ways that is probably good for mass politics and for social democracy, social democratic parties rather than parties that rely on small um, small interests that multiply themselves through money and and, and power. So it's a, it's a, I'm a little bit hopeful actually. It's it, politics in some ways feels more like a mass media in the '60s than like the high like if you think about politics in the '80s. That's the high era of television and grabs, admittedly long grabs, but like TV and grabs and a really, you know, and a, and a, and a print being run by a handful of leading commentators and basically Bob could go out and be amazing on TV and Paul could go up there and kind of brain fuck them with his, you know, amazing, you know, lines uh, and sort of he could persuade five people and Bob could persuade five cameramen and bam, there you go, we're done for the year. Um, it's very different for that now. In some ways, that real diffusion isn't all bad for, for a more democratic politics, I think. Uh -huh. No, I don't think I've got anything else to say, really. <laughs> I'd like to really, it's cinemas like this actually, there's a lot of documentary makers making amazing films. This isn't quite on oratory, but it is on that, it is on um, touch the subject of um, engaging with the processes. There's a lot of amazing documentaries that are being made that you're not getting to see on television. And places like this are actually really pivotal. And this documentary <laughs> festival that they've got coming up, 
starting tomorrow. There's incredible documentaries in there. They're world-class documentaries. And, you know, it's a documentary that changed my life, basically, that got me on a whole different trajectory, you know. So there is the power of these sort of stories to really move people as well. So it's also, I mean, what little cinemas like this are doing is amazing and we want more of them and we want as much diversity in there as possible. But unfortunately, the avenues for telling those diverse stories are drying up a lot, you know. And I mean, we've got to have public broadcasters and I don't want to be out there attacking the public broadcasters, but they could be doing a lot more in that area. It's a while. Ruth, you have to tell us what was the documentary. Yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> what was the documentary? Oh, okay. Um, I was at ANU and I went and saw it's probably quite a regular documentary, but it was a BBC documentary called Last Great of Dimbaza. And it was set in South Africa and it was under South Africa under the apartheid regime. And by the end of the documentary, I realised that all those people in the in the film had been disappeared, basically murdered. By, by the secret police. So basically, you, you were getting all of these stories and really getting inside them and then realised what was going on. It was portraying it in a really simple, humane way. And I the difference for me was I came out of that film saying, I can't do nothing having seen what I've just seen. You know, and documentaries and real life story, you know, art does, any, anything does if it's done well, has that power to take you somewhere else and transform you. But cinemas like this and venues for screening um, independent documentaries and alternative stories are really important. So it's all part of the same process. I need to do it. <laughs> I was just going to tell you a, a, a golf anecdote. You can't have a night like this without one. And, in uh, in 2002, on the 50th anniversary of Goff's public life, I did a, uh, an SBS documentary with Goff and it was nominated for a Logie Award and uh, we stupidly thought we'd probably win this award. Um, and uh, even though 95% of people voted that we should win it, it turned out, I was told, we were told about a month or two beforehand, you, you know, you can't win, this, this doesn't work that way. But we'd love you, you know, we'd love you and Goff to come to Melbourne. Anyway, I went and told Goff um, um, the bad news about them. Sorry to say, Goff, look, um, I've just been, there's no vote or anything, but we've got nominated for a Logie, but we can't win it, it just doesn't suit the way they hand them out. And as I said, Oh, he looked terribly crestful for, crestfallen for at least five seconds and then famously said, Oh, comrade, I suppose an Academy Award is out of the Holly's got it now. A comment. Um, there are a number. Of, I thought it was a wonderful documentary, a glorious documentary, actually. And part of its power was that um, there were aspects of Graham Freudenberg's life that um, are subtly treated, um, but tell you a lot about the man, um, the chain smoking, the incredible consumption of alcohol. And the ability, notwithstanding, that he could be uh, reeking of tobacco and 
for the rest of us, completely drunk, but still able to produce magnificent work. If you then roll into that equation that some of his best work was done under the pressure of an election campaign or something similar, working under impossible conditions, and I think um, the, the way you've subtly captured that is just glorious. Um, I have one distinct recollection of Graham Freudenberg in the 1970s. I was <coughs> allocated to the ABC's AM and PM correspond um, coverage of the 74 election. And I was on Goff's um, election bus, as it were, and we rocked into Hobart. And uh, I'd missed a deadline because of, you know, cock-ups in the um, campaign planning and various other things. I'd missed a deadline. And I was under a deal of pressure from my executive producer, who made it clear to me um, that there were going to be really dire consequences for this missing the deadline. <clears throat> but I must have mentioned this to Graham Freudenberg uh, uh, at a time when he was really quite under the weather. It was very late in the night when I mentioned it. And he just said one thing. He said, oh, we'll fix that. And I learned later that he telephoned the, um, uh, the head of uh, Radio Current Affairs in ABC and said, look, this wasn't Gilbert's fault. This was, you know, it was a terrible mistake. We all, we're all terribly sorry about it. And you really shouldn't visit, uh, visit the, uh, the, the, the scene on the reporter. Um, the following morning, I had a phone call from my executive producer who said, those left-wing ratbags have been in touch with me. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, they want to make sure that you stay on this campaign, reporting with what I take to be obvious bias. So from now on, you're going to report on Billy Snedden. <laughs> so I had that kind of brain. But, you know, amidst all that pressure he was under at that time, it was, he found time to make a phone call. Thank yeah. Thank you. Hey, he obviously did like a beer, didn't he? He does like a beer. The, 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 the story I love reading about, which he pops up in his own book, so it's, you know, it's not a story against him, is that he, he goes out with Francis James at lunchtime and gets pissed <laughs> in government and then turns out, gets back to the office to find the Prime Minister giving a press conference and sort of making heavy weather of defending some dreadful decision the government's made or is considered or some shocking compromise that, you know, the government's considered again, and Goff having given this incomprehensible explanation of why they've done this terrible thing, a journalist says, what does that mean? And Graham says, it means he's been fucking snowed by the fucking public service again. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I think Francis, does, when Francis James said something about he was a degenerate or a bourgeois or something, and Goff says, you can call me bourgeois, but never, never a degenerate or something. Anyway, I think Graham spent some time working in Japan um, in the subsequent months, actually. He got a break, didn't he? <laughs> no, he, he wrote his resignation letter, intended it to, um, to Goff, and he said, I don't think that'll be necessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another um, measure of the, their relationship as well. Um, something very important was left out of that story. Um, John did get that interview um, with Goff, and um, he turned up at the hotel room and Goff was in his underpants. <laughs> <laughs> So perhaps he's the only one that's ever done that. <laughs> you couldn't do it on TV, though, could you? Imagine what it would be like if it was Hawkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, one thing, I, I, over the years, 
Well, over recent years, made a number of tribute speeches to um, to uh, Graham, and uh, one I remember kicking off by saying, "Well, look, uh, this in relation to the alcohol and tobacco. Let's face facts. Let's face facts. It is an absolute merit, medical miracle that you are still alive." <laughs> Well, when I, when I first showed him the film, he said, um, gee, there's a lot of me smoking in there, isn't there, Ruth? <laughs> As he's done, he's got a cigarette in his hand. I said, I wonder why. But um, I'm, during the, Graham doesn't drink a lot now. He does occasionally, but during the film, he didn't. Um, well, you know, we might have had three beers in the whole shoot. Um, basically, it wasn't, you know, he's, he's sort of toned all that down. He'll still have a good lunch or... A get together, but um, it's not—he's not the drinker he used to be, and I mean he couldn't be, I suppose, in '84. But cigarettes are still there. So all of those, yeah, no, we did. He didn't drink at all. So probably three. Mm. Anyone else have a last question? <coughs> I'd be interested in hearing from the panel as to what you consider to be one of the great political speeches in the last five years. <laughs> I actually really like Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, I have to say. My daughter came racing into me. I know she heard it before I did and said, Mum, listen to this, listen to this. You know, she was 14 at the time, so it was just glorious to listen to. I think the two standouts are Julia's misogyny speech and, to be fair, uh, Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, yeah, that was a marvellous speech. And I, I, this, is, this sounds like a psycho answer, but I've meant to say, I thought like Graham's speech at the memorial was like the best speech of that event by a long way. Uh, and there was another speech given that day that was greatly praised in the subsequent days, and it was fine. But, but yeah, but what Freudenberg said needed to be said, and he said it really well. And when he when he nailed it right at the end and said never more than now, but it was just fantastic, and he really he really hit the mark. But um, the other really curious speech given was um, uh, when uh, Hillary Clinton had to concede the election and apologised. Uh, and that was really unusual. I suppose it was kind of the kind of the maybe the, the minor key kind of counterpart to the misogyny speech in a way was uh, was that she felt the need to apologise, um, even Hillary of all people. Yeah. So yeah, the speeches are so you often give good B speeches. I've got a, a chapter at the end of my book about the, the, the joys of writing the B speech, and uh, the B speech is often a good one. So yeah. Anyway. Point being that the two speeches from the former Labor leaders, I don't think, are in the last five years. That's true, actually. All right, unless there are any other questions or comments, I don't see any. Um, thank you all for joining us tonight. It's been wonderful to have you. A huge thanks to Riverside Theatres for hosting this festival mm. and for partnering with us on this film, to Robert Love in particular. Um, a big thank you to all of our staff at the Whitlam Institute for, for making tonight happen. Um, and I guess the last thing I wanted to do was just to um, give a little pitch for those of you who haven't been out to visit us or seen our orphan school, come and visit us. We um, have a particularly wonderful event on this Saturday, um, a wonderful recital, a piano recital by Kevin Hunt. So you're very welcome to join us. There are no fees for, for it on Saturday and it should be a lovely gathering. 
So thank you again. And Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.